Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast. Hello and welcome to Neuroscience Rounds. I'm Dr. Christy Snyder calling. Today is round four. We're going to continue talking about the visual system, uh, specifically the perception of motion, depth, form, and color. So last week, just to kind of review a little bit, we talked about how uh, when light comes in through the eye and hits your retina, it hits photoreceptors, which then snaps onto interneurons and then onto ganglion cells. The axons of the ganglion cells then form your optic nerve. The ganglion cells have uh, receptor fields that have two parts, the center and the surround. And um, then the, when those go back through and hit the um, V1, um, the circular receptor fields turn into rectangular ones. And then in V1, you have cells that are uh, sensitive to specific orientations. And they're organized in columns, and it's all kind of very organized and um, systematic like that. So you would ma- might expect from this that vision is very elemental. And you take very uh, specific parts of the visual scene, and it's processed exactly how it is in the world. Um, however, that doesn't, it's not the case. It's much more nuanced than that. So I'm going to give you some examples about how uh, what you perceive is not necessarily what is out there in the visual world. So I'm going to start with this. Um, so who can tell me what line is longer? That is correct. They are the same length, but some will perceive this one as being longer because of the areas pointing outward. What do you see here? A duck and a bunny. A duck and a bunny. You've seen these before. Does anybody else see only one and not the other? So this is the duck bill or the rabbit ears, depending on what you see. This is a good one. What do you see here? old ladies. Anybody see the young lady? Can anybody see both of them? All right, so the young lady, this is her eyelash, her nose, and her chin. And then the old lady, this is her nose, and this is her mouth. Um, Okay, does anybody see anything here? Yes. Does everybody see the Dalmatian? No? This is his little ear, and he's leaning his head down here, and this is his leg, and his body goes back that way. Do y'all see him now? <laughs> so our perception of what's out there is not necessarily what's out, what is uh, objectively in the visual world. So I just want to, again, um, recover some things we went over last week. So light comes into the eye and it hits the retina. And in the retina, you have uh, different kinds of ganglion cells. Uh, there are some that are called M cells and some that are called P cells. As I talked about last week, the M cells are for large growth features and for movement, where the P cells are for fine details and vision, uh, color vision. The different kinds of ganglion cells have different targets in the LGN. The M cells are, go to the uh, ventral layers and the P cells go to the uh, dorsal layers here. 
And then from the LGN, they then go to different targets in V1. So they all go to layer four of V1, but they're different sublayers of V1 they go to. So there's different parallel processing from the retina through LGN to V1. It stays separate and it goes to two different pathways. There is the where and the what pathway of visual processing. Okay, so the what pathway um, goes down here from V1 to V4 to the inferior temporal cortex, and it's for object processing. So you have uh, color, texture, shape, size, and details. You also have the where pathway that goes up V1 to V3 to MT, which is V5, it's a medial temporal lobe. Um, that's for uh, spatial processing. So you have location, movement, and spatial relationships. Does anybody know what this is? So this is the central sulcus here, and there's this gyrus here. It's M1, so that's where you have motor control. So you can see as you're uh, processing visual information, and you're kind of processing where it is, it's kind of making its way up to the motor um, area, so you can have hand-eye coordination. So we're gonna talk about all that later, but just kind of giving you a preview. So here's another example. An image enters your eye, goes all the way back to V1. You're like, there's a white sphere thing. And at the same time, it goes uh, up to the dorsal stream and down to the ventral stream. You're like, it's a baseball. It's moving up my face. So then you can make the decision to uh, get out the way, which I would do, run, um, or you can hit it with a bat, which but Katie would probably do. <laughs> um, okay. So this is another view of it. So as it comes in through the um, eyes and it goes back to V1, you have parallel processing going up through the dorsal and down through the ventral. And you have some things that are processed in multiple places. So you have color that's processed in both um, dorsal and ventral. And then you have um, some depth, which is in both. But the other things are specific, such as uh, motion is through the dorsal and then form is through the ventral. Um, yeah, so again, as it gets to the back in V1, it's very uh, simple, simplistic processing. And as you move up to the heterogeneous uh, par parts of the brain, as I also discussed in previous times, uh, it gets more nuanced and more complex processing. Okay, so the perception of form. So as I talked about, about before, um, at first when psychologists were studying uh, visual perception, they thought it's just elemental. So it's like building a house, you have these bricks, and you put them together, and then eventually you have a whole shape. But what they discovered is it's different. So what you perceive is different from the sum of the parts, and this is called gestalt. And there are lots of different gestalt principles that have been discovered um, as we have been um, studying uh, visual perception. So this is a classic one, figure ground. So basically what you see here depends on what you think is the figure and what you think is the ground. So if you think the figure is white and the ground is black, you'll see a vase. If you think the figure is black and the ground is white, you'll see two faces. Everybody see that? Okay, uh, this is a fun one. Uh, closure, so you perceive that things are connected in a visual scene even though they're not. So here you can see a cube, erase the cube. Uh, there's not, they're not actually connected, but your brain fills in. Sorry, am I in your way? Um, then you see, what is this? Um, and then you can see uh, a T here. So your brain fills in the lines even though they're not actually there. You have a similarity, so things that look similar, you tend to group together, um, even though they're not necessarily any more together than anything else. 
So you see kind of an L here, you kind of group these things together, you have a row here. Um, continuity um, is where uh, there's an intersection that obstructs uh, part an object in the visual scene, and then you kind of perceive them as not being interrupted. So you have this part and this part, and you perceive as continuing, however, there is a line in between it. Um, here, there's broken up places, but you perceive it as all being connected, and same here. Um, okay, symmetry. Um, you tend to group things based on if they are uh, symmetrical. Um, yeah. And a couple more fun ones. You have enclosure, uh, so things that tend to be uh, enclosed together. So you perceive these things as being grouped together to form a G. Proximity, connection, and common fate. So things in the same place, you tend to think that they are should be grouped together. So this is the brain, if you had it like flipped down, you're looking at the underside of it. So this is actually the right, right side, and that's the left side. Uh, this is the fusiform gyrus, which is kind of down. Again, it's on the kind of the ventral pathway. And you have specific areas that are um, dedicated to things that are really important. So you have places that evolutionarily is important for you to be aware of and recognize. Um, you also have faces that are super important for you to be able to uh, process. And interestingly, even though um, literacy is very recent, evolutionarily speaking, we even have a place that tends to be dedicated to word form. But I want to talk a little bit about the face area. Um, so processing faces is very important, and we're so good at it that we see them even when they're not there. So these are examples of uh, periodolia. So this is where you tend to see a face and things that aren't there. Um, people see this all the time, like, a few years back, there was like toast that looked like Jesus or something, <laughs> you know. Um, so we're really good in uh, seeing faces where there aren't faces. Um, but we evolved to see faces right side up, and so we tend to uh, perceive them holistically. So these faces look the same. Everybody think they look the same? Um, but when you look at the rest of them up, they're actually not the same. And so we assume that it's in the, like everything else is right. So this is upside down, so the eyes are upside down. However, here, the right side up, so you can see how you don't see the details when it's upside down. Okay, so importantly, once you recognize that a face is a face, you need to recognize what the face is telling you. So there's a pathway here um, that starts um, going here to the fusiform gyrus, to the amygdala, I fear frontal gyrus, this whole pathway here, and it tells you um, kind of what the facial expressions are emoting and what that means to you. Um, there are some uh, people who are not able to process this properly, uh, like in autism, and they can't tell you what the expression of the face means uh, emotionally. And if, when you have a trouble with uh, anything in this pathway, you have trouble processing emotions uh, in general. So uh, this is something that we will target sometimes for autistic um, kids and our neurofeedback, or people. Okay, so any questions about that before I move on to death perception? No? Okay. Okay, so the problem with death perception, or the challenge of death perception, is when visual information hits your eye, it's two-dimensional. So we tried to figure out how to make it three-dimensional. Um, so we have a lot of different monocular cues that you can see with just one eye. Uh, the first one is what we call motion parallax. So it's um, the principle that when you move, things that are closer to you, 
um, move more than things that are further away. Here's a fun example. A lot of video games use this. So here you can see that the pipes are moving faster than the hills in the back. And so that gives you the illusion of depth in the scene. So then we have um, linear and size perspective. So things that are further away occupy a smaller place on the retina. So we perceive the things that are smaller are further away from you. So here we perceive that the railroad ties should be the same length. And because they're getting smaller, we assume that they go back in, in the distance. So we use a lot of our just knowledge about the general size of things to make uh, decisions about how far away they are from you. So here's a good example. So here we think that the man and woman are probably approximately the same size. And then because he is smaller, he must be further away. Well, we don't perceive him as smaller, but I can prove that he is smaller. Uh, this is the same um, image. You can see that he is actually smaller, but you don't perceive that when you see the original image. You just see him being further back in the scene. Uh, there's also shading. So we evolved with one light source, which is the sun and the sky. It's above us. So when we see shading, we then can make assumptions about the objects that we see. So when the shading is down low, we assume that it's coming out. Um, and so it's con, uh, convex <laughs> coming out at you. But if you see the shading up top, it'll be, look like it's concave, curved inward. There's also interposition. So if something is obstructing another thing in the scene, we assume that the thing doing the obstructing is in front, a thing being obstructed is behind. But there's also binocular views, uh, cues of depth. Um, so your eyes are approximately six millimeters apart from each other, so they have different views of the world. So you can have an example of this by closing one eye, then the other, and you can see a slightly shifted view of the world. So as your brain puts that together, it then calculates the difference in those images and then it makes assumptions about the world. So when things are, so this is looking at this in the uh, fixation point, things that are closer, hit further areas out in the retina, things that are farther are closer in on the retina. Does everybody see that? So when things are, depth perception, work, depth perception works closer up because they're further apart on the retina, there's more disparity. And so we can tell better. That's why when you're threading a needle, you hold it real close instead of far away. Um, so we can, uh, the kind of extension of this is the further apart your eyes are, the better depth perception you have. So this guy probably has amazing depth perception. Um, this works when your brain and your eyes are working together. So if you have a head injury, uh, sometimes it affects the muscles of the eyes and the eyes stop working together and then you um, don't have as good depth perception. So there are uh, tests for depth perception that we do to assess that. Okay, so this is a fun example of depth perception and it works for some people, but not other people. I don't know if you've ever seen these magic eye posters. Um, so basically, and this PowerPoint will be online, so if you want to try it out later, what you're supposed to do is kind of cross your eyes and look like you're looking beyond the picture, and then uh, slowly let your eyes kind of relax. And you will then see a 3D image pop out. And if anybody can see it, let me know what it is. Um, it says, I love you. So later, when you look at the PowerPoints, uh, just try to see if you can find it. Um, they have whole books of these fun um, illusions. So in your free time, you can look at these.
Um, okay, you can move on to motion perception. Um, so, so there are a lot of words on this slide. I apologize about that. Um, but so motion is temporal. It happens across time. So its perception depends on successive activation of cells. Uh, so for example, when your eyes are still, then there's an image of a moving object moves across your visual scene. You have um, information related about movement based on the sequential firing of um, receptors across the retina. Does that make sense? This can also be done further back in the brain. Um, so if you are following the object and your head and eyes move, your brain can then calculate how much your head and eye move to see how fast it's moving. Um, so the MT, which is a medial temporal area, has a retinotopic map that conveys information about the speed and direction of movement. So just as in V1, there are certain columns for certain orientations. In area MT, you have certain cells that are specifically activated for a specific kind of movement. So for example, this one is down to the left. So they studied this in monkeys. Um, so they can, there's an experiment where uh, something moves and that monkey uh, does a saccade to indicate where it thinks it's moving. And they looked at neural firing in the brain and they noticed that um, certain neurons in MT were firing for specific directions. And they can also trick the monkey by then um, activating those uh, specific neurons. And then the monkey will think that there was movement in that area when there actually wasn't. That's how we dis discovered these uh, motion-specific neurons in MT. We're very good at movement. So here's an example. So we perceive that this one dot moved across the scene, when actually there were just four independent dots moving. So we make assumptions about movement. And this is very important for something like biological movement here. So all we see really are dots moving, but then we can make assumptions about form based on this, and they're really good with biological movement because evolutionary speaking, that's really important. And we can go from uh, deducing form to actually uh, gender. So here is an object, and then we can make assumptions about the gender of the person walking. That's kind of impressive when you're just looking at dots on a screen. So we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, now we're going to talk about color. So why is color important? Uh, why do we go through the um, evolution of developing color vision? So if you are a primate, you're trying to find some food, there are berries here, go find your berries. And they're very hard to do if you could only see gradations of gray. Now if you have color vision, look at those juicy berries and it's very important for you to have color vision. So a lot of people think that white is the absence of color, but it's actually the combination of all colors. And uh, a little guy by the name of Sir Newton was doing more than just observing trees, apples falling out of trees. He's also doing some fun experiments with prisms. So he found that um, they were making chandeliers and there was some light in the chandelier. And when light hit the chandelier, he saw a rainbow appear. He's like, that's interesting. So this is the beginning of how we started seeing um, rainbow, the, uh, the visual light spectrum. So um, I don't know about you, but when I first started learning about color, I thought it was a little bit creepy that we were only able to perceive a very small part of the electromagnetic spectrum. There's lots of other stuff going on in the universe that we are just not able to perceive. 
We only had this very small uh, fragment here, uh, but evolution decided that that's all you really need. <laughs> so um, the different colors we see have different uh, wavelengths, where red has the longest wavelength and blues have shorter wavelengths. Here we can see um, there are three different cones, and generally they are referred to as the blue, green, and red cones. Those are kind of misnomers. Uh, they should be referred to as a short, medium, and long cones. So we see the rods are kind of in the middle. They split the difference. So as we discussed, I think, last week, you need less light to activate the rods. So that's what we use when dim light. Um, but you don't see color because there's only one kind of receptor there. When you have more light and you activate the small, medium, and long receptors of the cones, you can then compare the activity of these different cones. So what you perceive as color is actually the comparison and the extent to which each cone is activated. Okay, so this is um, our three cones. And then as you can do, uh, a lot of computer, like PowerPoint has this, you can make any color by just comparing the extent to which red, there's red, green, and blue. So, um, there are sometimes you can combine colors and get different colors, right? So you have red and blue makes purple, red and yellow makes orange, and green and blue make turquoise. Uh, but there are some colors that we can't see, like a reddish green, what would that even look like? Or a bluish yellow. And the reason why we can't see this takes us back to our lovely on and off center surround cells. So just as I talked about before, how we perceive light based on the extent to which this light hits the center versus the surround in general, you also have these for color vision. So you have uh, color receptors, and receptive fields that are opponents. So you can perceive color based on the extent to which the center and surround are activated, but you can't have the combination of these, right? Because they are antagonistic and they oppose each other. Um, it gets a bit more complicated when you have a double opponent, so there's even more combinations of these. Um, it's not necessary to go into the details of that, but just know that the reason why you can't see a bluish yellow is because they are antagonistic and they oppose each other as they are processed in our brains. Okay. So uh, an example of um, color receptors. So as you look at a visual scene um, and your, the ganglion cells are processing color, they can only process so much and they eventually get burnt out. So here I want everyone to fixate here for about 15 seconds. And do you see the right color of the American flag now? And that's again because of the opponent parts of processing color. So you wore out the one side, so then what's left are the other. So that was a lot to cover today. Uh, I just want to end with, um, oh no, I still got color. Um, so this is how we test for color vision. Um, so what we do is there is um, numbers here, and if you can read the numbers, then you have uh, pretty good color vision. But then if you can't read the numbers, then it shows, uh, indicates some color deficiencies. Can everybody read the colors here? I mean, the numbers here? Yeah, okay. And this is an example of uh, what you would see if you had different kinds of colorblindness. So this is the red and green colorblindness and blue and yellow colorblindness. So now's the fun part. It's going to end with talking about color vision and other animals. So we often hear that dogs are colorblind. That's not necessarily true. 
So dogs have two cones, the blue and the green, so they can distinguish red from blue, but not red from green. So they would see something like this. Owls are nocturnal animals, and they're very good at seeing at night because they have five times more rod density in their eyes than we do. Bees and butterflies actually have four cones in their eyes, so they can see ultraviolet patterns. So a lot of flowers actually have ultraviolet patterns that direct the insects towards the inside so they can get pollen. But the best vision in the animal kingdom we've discovered so far is the uh, mantis shrimp, which has 16 different kinds of cones. And they can see all kinds of ultraviolet, infrared, and even polarized light. Um, so it is, must have a very interesting experience of the world. Well, thank you for round four of NeuroRounds. I think next week we have um, audition and hearing. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Rounds podcast for future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at integratebrainhealth.com.